How did one Frenchman revolutionize the global diet? That's ahead today on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. Uh, today, I want to talk to you about the history of canning. And before we go any further, I have to say that I actually have a very personal connection to this topic. Uh, I'm from rural Arkansas, and one way that my parents were able to raise four children on a diesel mechanic salary was by growing a lot of our own food. Uh, my parents actually have a huge vegetable garden next to their house, and that garden was where I spent most of my summers whenever I was growing up. Uh, we grew just about everything you could think of in this garden. Potatoes, green beans, corn, tomatoes, okra, peas, squash, zucchini, cucumbers, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, lettuce, radishes. Yeah, we grew a lot. We even grew sugarcane. Well, well, technically it's sorghum because from the time I was about 12, we made our own molasses, but uh, that's another therapy session entirely. Anyway, uh, vegetables don't tend to keep very long once they're picked, so we had two huge freezers in a back room of the house, we uncreatively called the freezer room, and a lot of our produce was frozen. But my parents also built a cellar into the side of the hill behind our house, and it was here that we kept the goods that my mom and dad would can. Jellies, jams, green tomato relish, vegetable soup, apple and peach pie filling, salsa, pickled okra, green beans quarts and quarts of green beans, well, you get the idea. And so, for me, summer will forever be associated with the whistle of a pressure cooker and the smell of hot mason jars. Canning, however, is a relatively recent technology and has only been around for about 200 years. For most of recorded history, humanity has had to resort to some pretty creative methods to preserve our food, and these methods of food preservation have, in large part, determined the makeup of our diet. Food preservation may have even given rise to civilization itself by allowing human beings to preserve grown food past the harvest and into the winter. Meat, for instance, is calorically very dense and provides us with enormous amounts of the protein and fat we need to survive. It's also the easiest food to preserve as it can be cured by dehydration or by pickling it in salt, or in colder climates, it can be frozen by packing in ice or snow. Preserved this way, meat can last for months, or if the temperature and conditions are controlled, even a year or two. Grains, pulses, and cereals, which are an excellent source of carbohydrates and fiber, are also relatively easy to preserve, either dehydrated whole or by grinding them into flour. The ease of preserving meat and grain explains why for most of our history they have been the cornerstone of most world diets, because vegetables are another story entirely. Today, we think of vegetables as an essential part of our diet, but this has not always been the case. In part because vegetables begin to decay the second that they're harvested due to cell walls breaking down and exposure to bacteria in the air. And before we go any further, I do want to acknowledge a massive debt to a book by uh, author Sue Shepard called Pickled, Potted, and Canned. It's one of the very few surveys out there about the history of food preservation, and actually one of the few books that talks about the history of canning. So uh, everything that you're about to hear from me for the rest of this podcast owes a great deal to this book. By the late 18th century, there were a number of methods of food preservation that dominated Europe. Curing, as I said, uh, via dehydration or salting. Immersing in a liquid, such as pickling and vinegar, for instance, though you could also put foods like fish in oil to preserve them. 
uh, candying, by which water is drawn out of the fruit and replaced with sugar, or potting, which was a common way to preserve meat by cooking the meat and then placing it in a ceramic container and floating uh, oil, lard, aspic, or clarified butter over the top in order to prevent contact with the air. Uh, the French in particular became masters of this, which is why if you buy pâté, it's generally surrounded by a layer of aspic or some other kind of fat. But the problem with a lot of these preservation methods is that they fundamentally change the flavor and texture of the food, uh, sometimes in a good way and sometimes not. And they also strip foods of much of their vitamins and minerals and caloric value. It also means that diets tend to be incredibly local. It's simply not possible, for instance, to transport raw milk more than a day's journey before it starts to go bad without refrigeration, which is why it also tends to get turned into cheese. Vegetables can last a little longer, but still only a few days. Thus, in the pre-industrial, pre-railroad world, diet was highly regionalized. The problem of food preservation was also a military issue, particularly with the colonial expansion of the 17th and 18th centuries. As Europeans began to construct global empires, they also built up navies to defend those empires, and having an adequate food supply on long sea voyages became a strategic military issue. Cured meat and hard bread simply were not calorically diverse enough, and many sailors uh, suffered from vitamin deficiencies, most notably scurvy, a disease brought on by a lack of vitamin C. To combat this problem, at the end of the 18th century, the governments of Britain and France both offered large public rewards for innovative food preservation methods. Which brings us to Nicolas Appert. Appert was born in Chalon-sur-Marne in north-central France, about 90 miles east of Paris. His father was a brewer and innkeeper, and Nicolas grew up to become a chef, eventually serving in several noble households and minor courts in both France and Germany. In the 1780s, he set up shop in Paris as a confectioner and began the long process of experimentation in food preservation. When the French Revolution broke out, he moved just outside Paris to the town of Ivry-sur-Seine and continued his experiments there. After much trial and error, Appert hit upon a method of food preservation that was itself revolutionary. It had long been known that exposure to air was detrimental to food, though no one actually knew quite why. Although Anton von Leeuwenhoek had observed bacteria in the 17th century, the role of bacteria in food spoilage and disease was not well understood until the 19th century. During the time of Appel's experimentation, the overwhelming popular theory of food spoilage and mold was that of spontaneous generation. It was known, however, that boiling food seemed to make it last longer, as did minimizing contact with air, and so Appert combined these two approaches. First, food was sealed in glass bottles. These bottles were then corked, um, the modern metal jar lid had not yet been invented, uh, but Appert had special corks constructed so that the natural holes in the cork ran perpendicular to the jar mouth rather than uh, parallel such as in a wine cork. This was to minimize air contact. Finally, the cork was fixed in place with wire, and the whole thing was then submerged in boiling water for about half an hour, after which the water was drained off and the jars allowed to cool. Foods preserved in this way, he discovered, kept much more of their original flavor and texture and for longer periods, and the method worked on foods that were not easily preserved by one of the other pre-existing food preservation methods. What Appert initially discovered is today known as a water bath, which is one of the two types of canning, uh, the other being pressure canning, where the contents of a jar are subjected to steam pressure for a certain amount of time. 
Appert did experiment with pressure canning, which was done at the time with a device called an autoclave, which was the forerunner of the modern pressure cooker. The autoclave at the time was a very unpredictable and unsafe device, notoriously prone to explosion. Appert actually improved on the autoclave to make it safer, and one of his heirs patented the design. So what's the difference between a water bath and pressure cooking? Well, the kind of canning you use depends on the pH of the food inside the jar, uh, though Appert obviously was not aware of this, as remember, he still has no concept of bacterial contamination, and pH as a measurable scale was only invented in the early 20th century. The boiling water bath method kills both aerobic and anaerobic bacteria, but the spores of some anaerobic bacteria, that is bacteria which do not require air to live, uh, they can survive past the boiling point of water. This is particularly true for the bacterium Clostridium botulinum, which causes botulism. In foods with a low pH, like tomatoes, the acidity in the food is enough to kill these anaerobic bacteria spores. For foods with a more neutral pH, in order to kill the spores, the food has to be raised to temperatures above the boiling point of water, about 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 20 degrees Celsius more, um, which is what, in fact, pressure canning does. It raises the temperature of the food in the jar above the boiling point. Appert's method soon found the support of private patrons, which enabled him to set up his own workshop, and by 1804 he had presented his preserved foods to the French government and military, who engaged in extensive testing of the preserved foods by taking them on three-month sea voyages. Ships returning, having consumed Appert's bottled food, reported all-around success. One report read, quote, The broth in bottles was very good. The broth included with boiled beef in a special vessel, good but also weak. The beef itself, very edible. The beans and green peas, prepared both with and without meat, have all the freshness and agreeable savor of freshly picked vegetables." End quote. Tests continued for several more years on a wide variety of foods, including fruit juices, milk, wine, stews, and soups. Eventually, Appert gave a public demonstration to a governmental commission, the Consulting Bureau of Arts and Manufactures, which paid him an award of 12,000 francs and ordered that his preservation methods be published in a book, which appeared in 1810 and was entitled The Art of Preserving for Several Years All Animal and Vegetable Substances. Scientists appointed to study Appert's method concluded that it was successful because it cut off contact with the oxygen in the air rather than the bacteria. In fact, the role of bacteria in food putrefaction was not confirmed until the experiments of Louis Pasteur in 1864, and even though Appert's experiments with preserving milk and wine came some 40 years earlier, and he did in fact uh, just heat milk and wine for a certain period and was able to preserve them in jars this way, the process of applying heat to kill bacteria is today known by Pasteur's name, not Appert's. While over the next few decades, Appert would receive all manner of awards and prizes from the French government, uh, outside of France he faced some difficulties. At the same time that he published his book in 1810, an Englishman named Peter Durand applied for a patent to a preservation method shockingly like Appert's. Given certain connections that Durand had in France, it seems that he might have pilfered Appert's design and tried to pass it for his own, we just don't know. Uh, he very quickly sold the patent for a thousand pounds to a group of three men, Brian Donkin, John Gamble, and John Hall, who within a few years opened up production based on the Appert method. 
It was not until the cessation of hostilities between Britain and France following the defeat of Napoleon in 1814 that Appert was able to take his invention to Britain, and by the time he arrived, Duncan, Gamble, and Hall had already begun production, and Appert went home seemingly empty-handed. The Englishmen, however, began to address an issue with Appert's design, namely the use of glass bottles for preservation. Sailors complained that the glass bottles were far too fragile for long sea voyages, and the round shape was inefficient for storage purposes. The English were already well into the process of industrialization, and so Duncan and his partners began to construct and use tin-plated steel canisters, chosen because tin is largely non-reactive and non-toxic, unlike raw iron, which will rust, or copper, which is reactive with some foods. The English were able to produce large quantities of good quality tin plate, unlike the French. Appert would eventually try to move to tin plate canisters, but French tin plate was of inferior quality and not as ductile. In any case, these early tin plate canisters, or tin cans, still took a long time to construct, as the plate had to be turned on a mold by hand and lids were soldered on. Tins bound for British naval ships were then coated in lead paint in order to preserve the can from corroding in the presence of salt water. The unfortunate byproduct was, of course, that sometimes people traded scurvy for lead poisoning on the high seas. Moreover, tin cans were not recycled or reused after they had been emptied of their contents. There were some attempts to remedy this, such as creating large pot-sized tin cans with handles that could then be reused as casseroles or cooking pots, but such applications were limited. The canning process eventually reached America in 1817, though the business didn't really take off here until the Civil War. Over the course of the 19th century, American and British inventors improved upon the process of canning, creating thinner cans, refining and calibrating the use of pressure cooking in the autoclave, and mechanizing the process of can manufacturing. In America, tinned or canned food was a mass market business, but in Europe, tinned food remained primarily the preserve of the military. Certainly, soldiers and sailors benefited from a more varied diet, but tinned food was not consumed in large quantities by the European public until after World War I. While the emerging British and American canning industries were thriving, Appert was sinking. He put most of his government award money back into the business and experimentation. For reasons unknown to us, he seems to have lived a very meager lifestyle, uh, despite having a successful business. When he died in 1841 at the age of 91, he, like Mozart, was buried as a pauper in a mass grave. Appert's contribution to human society, however, cannot be underestimated. Canning allowed for the creation of a truly global food economy. Innovations in transportation speed aside, world diets have become incredibly diverse and far less regional as a result of his invention. While the introduction of shelf-stabilizing additives and preservatives in the 20th century would greatly extend the life of canned food into the multi-year range, it was Appel's invention that made it all possible. So next time you open your kitchen cabinet, take a look at what's in there, and remember the name of Nicolas Appert. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>